in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to this week's Nature Podcast. This week we're uncovering the brain's control of ageing and looking at a brain-inspired computer. Our third story is sadly not brain-themed. We're looking at Al Gore's new film on climate change and asking what the risks are of politicians communicating science. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 27th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Woody Allen once said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. It's a bold ambition, but what if you could do both? What if achieving immortality was your work? This week, I've been talking to scientists who study ageing. It's a fact of life that our physical bodies wear out. From cells to organs to organ systems, nothing lasts forever. Scientists may not be looking for the fountain of youth, but they do want to extend our lifespans beyond the current physical limits. Many people claim to have found the key to ageing, whether you can solve ageing of the entire organism with just one molecule or one pathway. It's probably not the case. This is Renier Bonne, who studies the role of long, non-coding RNAs in the ageing of the cardiovascular system. But that's just one area of research. People are studying all sorts of possible ageing culprits. There's levels of DNA methylation in cells, the length of telomeres that protect the ends of chromosomes, restriction of calorie intake, metabolic rate. Whether there is one answer or many, as research continues, even more possible factors appear. So one of the things that pops up a lot is microRNAs. Uh, MicroRNAs are um, very tiny RNAs, as the name already says. Um, they are about 20 nucleotides long, made by, by cells. And they are regulators of gene expression profiles, which means that these single tiny RNAs can control the behavior of the cell by controlling which proteins are present at a given time. MicroRNAs feature heavily in a new paper on ageing out this week. I called up one of the authors, Dongsheng Kai, who explained that the research started off looking not at RNA, but at the brain. They started by considering the 300 neurons that make up the nervous system of the worm, C. elegans. Experimentally, if you change a few neurons of those worms, it could be sufficient to change the lifespan. In some cases, can extend lifespan. A mammal brain is a lot more complex than a worm's. Dongsheng's team decided to focus on a particular area called the hypothalamus. Because hypothalamus has a classical function to regulate the whole body physiology, whole body homeostasis. So there was a natural logic for us to reason that the hypothalamus might be involved in an agent which has not been studied before. Previous work had established that the hypothalamus is indeed somehow involved in ageing, though no one knew how. Other work had been looking at the effect of stem cells on the ageing of various organs. So Dong Sheng and his colleagues were very interested by the discovery a few years ago of stem cells in the hypothalamus. So I think uh, now put, the, put these two threads together, right? Hypothalamus and stem cells. So we, then we were uh, asking these questions. Does this group of cells 
work to somehow affect uh, or contribute to the functions of hypothalamus in regulation of aging. Dongsheng and colleagues first looked at the hypothalamuses of mice over their lives and found that aging was associated with a big loss of these hypothalamic stem cells. The next step was an experimental intervention. So to test if there's a cause-effect relationship between the loss of stem cells and the aging phenotype, we developed experiments to destroy this group of cells in mice. We found the loss of these cells lead to the acceleration of aging speed. So there was a causal link, but what could it be? How was the hypothalamus influencing ageing in the rest of the mice's bodies? The answer may be in the microRNAs that we mentioned earlier. We found hypothalamus stem cells have a unique ability, very strong ability to secrete microRNA. And the microRNA is very small, so it is produced, and recent research has said it can be secreted to outside of cells and affecting other cells, the neighbouring cells, uh, some distant cells. MicroRNAs can be secreted from cells and travel round the body in vesicles, tiny sacs of membrane. But no one yet knows what the microRNAs produced by the hypothalamus are actually doing. We don't know whether microRNAs is secreted to directly affect the rest of the body or it's possible microRNAs is secreted in the, in the brain and affect different parts of the brain. And then brain can affect the whole body. So uh, we, we still have a very limited understanding and a very limited uh, information. Even so, Renier Bon is intrigued. What is uh, super interesting about the new paper is that it actually provides a, a link between the brain and uh, aging of the body. It was known that the um, stem cells in the hypothalamus um, contribute to that, but what exactly then um, gives this signal from the hypothalamus to the entire body was not known. Renier thinks the discovery that microRNAs are involved is bound to interest people looking for a way to prevent aging. I'm pretty sure that people will dive on this because, of course, this is if it's something that you can uh, use systemically, you can also think that you can inject these um, uh, vesicles. Actually, the authors also showed that it uh, can be done in mice and that rejuvenates the mice, basically, or prevents aging. Um, so if this can be translated to humans, of course, uh, this would be uh, the elixir of life, basically. But even ignoring our limited understanding of this mechanism so far, has this paper actually found the elixir of life? The one answer to the question of ageing? That's part of the answer, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that if you only look at that, that you will uh, have only part of the puzzle. What you also see in the paper is that these mice still die of old age. These mice don't survive indefinitely or the, their lifespan is not doubled or so. So it's only part of the puzzle. But of course, it's, um, it's an important piece of the puzzle. And it's, a, it's scientifically also a very interesting mechanism by which this works. That was Renier Bone from the VU Medical Centre in Amsterdam. And you also heard from Dongsheng Kai from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, New York. Dongsheng's paper is available now at nature.com forward slash nature. What I got from listening to that was that the secret to eternal life is basically a brain transplant. Well, it makes a change from having to drink the blood of young, beautiful people in order to keep your looks. Is that even a thing? I'm sure that happens in a fairy tale somewhere, doesn't it? Not any fairy tales that I was read as a child. Slightly concerning. I'm going to keep my youthful blood and my beautiful brain cells away from you just to be on the safe side. That is probably sensible. Coming up later in the show, measuring the mass of protons and finding out when superbugs got so super. That's in the research highlights.
Now, though, Adam has been taking a look at the sequel to one of the most famous documentaries of all time. Eleven years ago, a film came out which changed the way many people thought about climate change. The film was called An Inconvenient Truth. If you look at the ten hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last fourteen years. This film laid bare many of the scientific realities of global warming, but it wasn't presented by a scientist. Instead, it followed U.S. politician Al Gore. The film made a big splash with critics. It won two Oscars, including one for best documentary feature, and Al Gore received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on communicating climate science. But according to science historian Naomi Oreskes, the film also had a huge impact on audiences. An inconvenient truth was seen by millions of Americans, and it was a very powerful film. It was beautifully made, very well produced, and very thoughtful. And opinion polls showed that people who went to see An Inconvenient Truth felt that they understood the issue better and were motivated to do something about it after seeing the film. A lot has changed in the decade since An Inconvenient Truth. Both in the climate and our society, emissions have increased. The world has continued to warm. Renewables have become cheaper. In Paris, the world agreed to halt global warming, and a couple of months ago, Donald Trump decided to pull the United States out of this agreement. To explore this changed world, Al Gore is releasing a follow-up to his 2006 film. It is wrong to pollute this earth. It is right to give hope to the future generation. This is an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. To veteran climate scientist Michael Mann, this film is more than an update to its predecessor. This is much more about the larger public battle and the urgency that is apparent in comparing what we're seeing today in terms of climate change impacts、um, with what we were seeing just ten years ago when when Gore did an inconvenient truth. Both films are presented by Al Gore, and for many, Gore has become the figurehead of climate change. Although Michael reckons he's done an admirable job communicating climate science, this job has come with its pitfalls. He's perhaps the most vilified public figure when it comes to the communication of climate change,、um, and I should know. <laughs> Michael should know because skeptical politicians and members of the public have aggressively attacked his prominent climate research. But the attacks aimed at Al Gore have been even more extreme. Michael tells me that critics have targeted everything from Gore's personal life to his weight. Naomi reckons the reason he's so vilified is precisely because he's so successful in communicating climate change. But his political background may also limit his success. So obviously, a politician who is associated with a political party, a particular set of ideological positions. Is unlikely to be effective speaking to people on the other side of the aisle, and so in that respect, you know, I don't really expect that a lot of、uh, hardcore conservatives will go see Al Gore's new film or be persuaded by it. Gore's political background—he's a Democrat and former vice president—could be more than a barrier to certain audiences. Michael feels that it may actually have had negative consequences for discussions about climate change. By becoming a prominent、uh, spokesperson for the climate issue,、um, I think that Gore played into the hands of 
sort of climate change uh, deniers. Um, uh, it allowed them to sort of create a wedge. It allowed them to say, hey, look, you know, just as we had told you all along, this issue is entirely about politics. And look, you know, who's the figurehead? It's Al Gore, this, uh, you know, failed politician, as, I'm, as they would call him. Uh, I think it's difficult to fault Al Gore for that. But the fact is that they were able to exploit um, the fact that he's a partisan political figure to great effect. There certainly is a deep divide on climate change in American politics. A 2015 study published in Politics and Policy compared the views of conservative parties in nine countries around the world. It found that of all the parties, only the Republican Party in the US denied climate change. Skeptics may have exploited Al Gore's political career to strengthen this divide. You know, maybe it would have been better from the get-go if scientists had done a better job of explaining it, um, but they didn't. And so that's one of the reasons that Al Gore got involved early on. The effects of having a politician as a spokesperson for science are complex. But Naomi and Michael both agree that the solution isn't for Al Gore to stop making films. Instead, they think it's crucial that as many people as possible, from as many fields as possible, communicate climate change. So this problem begins as a scientific question, but it doesn't end there. In fact, it ultimately isn't a scientific question. It's ultimately a political, social, and economic question because of the profound impacts that climate change will have on all of us. So it's absolutely essential, um, in my mind, that other people become involved as spokespeople, politicians, business leaders, even celebrities. There's no one magic bullet. Um, We need all of these people and institutions and voices out there because we are talking about the greatest challenge that we've ever faced as a civilization. That was Michael Mann, who's based at Penn State University. We also heard from Naomi Oreskes, who's based at Harvard. An inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, comes out on 28th of July in America and 18th of August in the UK. Some cinemas are also broadcasting a live conversation with Al Gore before screenings of the film on Friday the 11th of August. Check out Michael's review over at nature.com forward slash books and arts. The news is still to come, where reporter Ewan Calloway is joining us to discuss the threat of gene drives and financial incentives to protect trees. Now we've got the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Protons just got a little lighter. Well, that's not strictly true. Researchers just got a little better at measuring the proton's mass. They trapped one in an electromagnetic field and measured how it moved. The team then compared this to the movements of a carbon-12 nucleus. This gave the proton mass to an accuracy of 32 parts per trillion. The researchers are positive that their new value is lighter than the current figure. 296 parts per trillion lighter. Next, physicists want to measure antiprotons just as accurately, on the off chance that they spot a tiny difference. That paper's in Physical Review Letters. The famous antibiotic-resistant superbug MRSA is an arch-nemesis of hospitals all around the world. It's continually outwitted attempts to use different antibiotics to treat it, 
And now it looks like MRSA bacteria had already evolved resistance to one of these antibiotics, methicillin, before doctors even discovered it. Researchers looking into the genome of MRSA, or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, determined that a particular methicillin-resistant gene evolved in the 1940s. But methicillin didn't enter widespread clinical use in Britain until 1959. It seems that earlier drugs, like penicillin, could have inadvertently selected for the resistant gene. That paper is in Genome Biology. Artificial intelligence is getting really impressive. Nowadays, AI computers can beat humans at fiendish games like Go and complicated tasks like image recognition. Their intelligence is born out of algorithms that emulate the behaviour of neural networks in the human brain, where nodes work together to crunch data, spot patterns and learn from their successes. But unlike the brain, the powerful devices that process these algorithms consume immense amounts of power – 10,000 times more than our own fleshy computers. That's in part because they still use transistors, just like the ones in your phone or laptop. These act like simple switches, meaning they need to be arranged in large, energy-hungry networks. So, a group of researchers in France have decided to take yet more inspiration from the human brain and create miniature magnetic oscillators, which can process vastly more data than a simple transistor. This means the networks can be a fraction of the size on our computer chips. Reporter Jeff Marsh called lead author Julie Grolier, director at the National Centre for Scientific Research in France. Our current computers are made with transistors. However, a transistor is just a switch. And if we want to emulate neurons and synapses, we need much more than a switch. A synapse has a lot of memory and a lot of tunability. And so if we want to emulate that with transistors, we need to assemble a lot of them, and it takes a lot of area on a chip. So it means that we want to make nanoneurons, and for this, we need to fabricate new devices, new nanodevices. The devices that we are using are magnetic nano-oscillators. They are like a tiny compass, and when you send an electrical waveform, the compass is going to start to gyrate, right? And these magnetic gyrations are then converted into voltage oscillations. It's this transformation that is at the heart of the computation. And that output is analogue as opposed to kind of digital or binary transistors that we use today. Exactly, that's the point. It's analogue. And what is important is that this transformation is what we call non-linear. In fact, neurons are non-linear. If you excite them with a constant input, they are going to uh, spike periodically. And you see they are nonlinear oscillators in that sense. Right. So just like a neuron in the brain, what your oscillator spits out isn't directly proportional to its input. Tell us about the task that you had your oscillator do then. What we choose is to recognize uh, spoken digits, a kind of benchmark task for cognitive computations. So there are different speakers that pronounce the digits from 0 to 9. And the goal is to recognize the digit independently of the speaker who pronounced it. 
And on this spoken digit recognition task, we have obtained a success rate of 99.6%. Presumably, this spintronic oscillator, this tiny, tiny single unit, has got some powerful conventional computers on either end of it to send the signal and to receive and, and process the data. Right. So for now, we are using a computer to complement our neuron. In a real neural network, you have neurons, but also you have synapses. And these synapses are important to learn. And for now, we uh, emulate them with a computer. And just to be clear, when you say synapses, you mean connections between the neurons? Uh, Yes. In that case, these are connections between the neurons towards uh, an output. Right. So you've sort of simulated a network. Yes. Right. But there's only a single unit, though, in your experiment. So does it does it sort of do it lots of times? Right, exactly. So we have used some kind of trick that is called time multiplexing to emulate a full neural network with only one oscillator. So for this uh, spoken digit recognition task, we have emulated 400 uh, neurons. So basically, the uh, magnetic pillar plays the role of each neuron one after the other, just like an actor who would play alone all the characters in a movie. Now, AI algorithms at the moment are getting really good at voice and image recognition. How does your system compare to the likes of Siri, Apple's virtual assistant on the iPhone, for example? Because she's really impressive. Of course, our system is much more simple than Siri. Uh, Siri is able to recognize uh, full sentences, right? Here we are only able to recognize digits from 0 to 9. However, Siri requires millions of neurons, and here we only imitate 400. So it really shows that even if it has this miniature size, uh, our magnetic neuron is able to perform Uh, cognitive task successfully. Now, this work was on a single oscillator. You obviously, as you mentioned, simulated a a network. But theoretically, your aim presumably is to have several of these oscillators and actually network them. Exactly. So our next step will be to try to compute with uh, assemblies of these oscillators. What we are going to try to do is to fabricate them very densely Because in that case, since these structures are magnetic, you know, and if you put the cylinders close enough to each other, they are going to communicate with each other. So the magnetic oscillation of one is going to influence the magnetic oscillation of the neighboring ones, you know, like dominoes. So you can create like chain reactions of magnetic oscillations, which are going to emulate the neural network. So what is this going to be useful for? Am I going to have these spintronic oscillators in my phone or am I just going to be sort of driven home in my autonomous car by them? Well, the ultimate goal that we have is to realise these very smart miniature chips that would have a very low power consumption, able of learning and uh, adapting to the real world. As we said, to classify huge amounts of data in real time, Uh, But you can also think of uh, putting them to help driving autonomous vehicles or uh, for medical diagnosis, also making low-power prosthetic devices uh, where you need a little bit of intelligence and a very low-power consumption. That was Julie Grolier from the CNRS in France talking to reporter Jeff Marsh.
Finally, this week, it's the news chat and Ewan Callaway has popped down to the studio. Hey, Ewan. Hey there. Now, this week, we're not talking about anyone who has long ago died in a bit of a change for Ewan on the news chat. Uh, But instead, we're taking a look at, first, US defence agencies who are trying to get their heads around a somewhat unusual threat, gene drives. So what are gene drives? Gene drives are a genetic engineering technology that basically drives a mutation through a wild population. Um, And it does so even when that mutation is uh, not beneficial to the the wild animal. And it's a technology that's being pursued most notably as as a way to potentially eliminate uh, mosquitoes that carry malaria or at least prevent them from carrying malaria. So this is a technology that has really a lot of promise uh, from a public health perspective, but it has raised some concerns because it's a technology that could potentially extinct a species or alter an entire ecosystem. So you could think that you could do untoward things with it or untoward things could happen by accident, hence the interest of U.S. defense agencies. Where are we now with the technology? Has it actually been implemented in real-world studies? No. Um, It's very, very, very early days for this technology, which is based on CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, at least in its latest inception. We've seen a handful, really, of of laboratory studies in a few organisms, uh, mostly mosquitoes. That's really where a lot of the focus has been. Um, But there's a a very well-funded project based here in London at Imperial College to hopefully develop the technology so that it's ready for field trials in sub-Saharan Africa as early as 2024. But we're a long way off, everyone admits. What are the threats that uh, U.S. defense agencies are considering and how could you tackle these threats? You could imagine some, some, some science fiction scenario where you weaponize mosquitoes, for instance, you you use a gene drive to introduce a, a, a gene that encodes a toxin that it spreads to people that it bites. I mean, you could come up with all sorts of things like that. But really, I think the biggest potential problem is uh, these organisms escaping a laboratory when we don't want them to, when, when we're not ready to test them in the field. And that's really what I think uh, U.S. defense agencies and scientists who are being funded by uh, these this some of these defense agencies are are worried about and trying to to counter. How could you counter that? Could you build in some kind of off switch? The most recent news is that the uh, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency DARPA, which kind of funds futuristic uh, sounding research, has funded. But I think seven groups of scientists, total of $65 million, to look at ways to better control gene editing and applications of gene editing, including gene drives. So some of these might be like drugs that just turn off CRISPR or other gene editors. Other ways you could imagine that if you've got a, a gene drive spreading, spreading a trait through a wild population that you don't want, you could have a counter gene drive that either reverses that gene drive or it immunizes unaltered populations, so they're kind of resistant to it. You're basically using a biotechnology to counter a biotechnology, but these are some of the ideas people are imagining. Our second story today is a lot less high-tech, I suppose. Uh, People are being paid to protect trees in Uganda. What was actually done here? 
Yeah, it seems like a, a pretty a pretty sensible thing. You know, we think trees are important. Trees have a value. They reduce levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by uh, absorbing them. So this experiment, which is really an economic study, uh, wanted to test this principle. If we pay people not to cut down their trees, well, does it work? As in, do they not cut down their trees? And does it pay off? That is, is the, the money saved from the greenhouse gas emissions that, that don't occur as a result? Is that offset by the amount of money that, that we paid? And in both cases, they found good news. Yeah, I believe so. Um, this two-year project, they paid people, 180 people in 60 Ugandan villages, a total of $20,000 to not cut down their trees. And the study found that indeed, uh, compared to villages where people weren't paid to uh, not cut down their trees, that there was more forest cover. And not cutting down these trees avoided enough carbon dioxide emissions to pay for the cost that was paid not to cut them down. How do you begin to estimate the actual value of the carbon dioxide that's being absorbed by these trees in the first place? Fortunately, government agencies like the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency have already done it for us. And I think it's based on the principle that uh, carbon dioxide has a cost based on its effects on, on climate. So there's this idea called the social cost of carbon. And I think that, that's what they base this, this program on. Paying people to protect trees isn't some radical new idea. It's been done before. So what's actually new about what this study was doing? The United Nations has this uh, program, right, where they encourage countries to pay people to uh, not cut down trees. And they use the system, which is called, I guess, Red Plus, to offset carbon, carbon emissions for, for these countries. So if you're a country and you pay people not to cut down trees, it counts a, as offsetting your own, your own carbon emissions. I think in the past, these programs have not been really evaluated, whether they're effective or not, or whether they're, they're worth it or not. I think the same study authors evaluated a lot of these programs and found that more than half of them, you couldn't tell whether they worked or not, or they, whether they were a good value or not. So this study, just published in Science, I think is really quite unique in showing that in this situation, it was worthwhile to pay people not to cut down trees. Isn't there a risk that now the study's done, everyone might just go and chop down their trees anyway? Yeah, I guess there's a risk. But the, the researchers concluded that the, the carbon that was offset during the study period made it worth it. So it, it still would have been good value. Different communities are going to have different attitudes to their trees and maybe ascribe different financial benefits to having those trees about. Is there any indication that this study would apply to different communities as well? I don't think so. I mean, I think this seems like it's quite specific to this community and, and this study. I mean, I'm sure people will want to want to extrapolate, but I, I wouldn't be willing to do it. Okay, so, so far we know at least it works for sure in this one instance. So that's a bit of progress towards understanding paying for trees. Yep. Thank you, Ewan, for joining us. For more on trees and gene drives, nature.com forward slash news is the place to go. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for the latest and greatest developments in science. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. I have a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. 
With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.